Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. We seem to keep doing this, Byron, but this podcast can be in two parts again. Well, we have our guests to blame for that. They just simply can't stop talking. On a positive note, at least you as the listener get to hear us a little less, which can only be a good thing. The array of topics is vast as always. We're going to look at the lead shot debate, both with shotgun cartridges and non-lead alternatives uh, in rifle ammunition. We're going to discuss the European move to ban all semi-automatic weapons. And we're also going to be looking at the legislation change to license air rifles in Scotland. That's not all. The justification for trophy hunting is going to be part of our discussion, as well as set of the line. Yes, that story hasn't gone away yet. We're going to bring in shooting the largest elephant in modern times, as well as what would happen if trophy hunting was banned. And we're talking about the global perspective, not just Africa. We're going to name drop with a couple of historical hunters who were a big part of conservation globally. Names such as Teddy Roosevelt, Frederick Courtney Salou, and Jim Corbett, as well as give some excellent examples of how hunting has saved species in modern times. Hunting for conservation is certainly going to be a focus for this podcast, and we're going to be looking at the news that South Africa has opened up the trade of rhino horn. That is going to be a very interesting to see how that plays out, and we're going to go into some detail about how that may affect poaching across Africa. This podcast is supported and brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Jens, welcome to our Into the Wilderness podcast. It's uh, really great that you could find some time to to join us. I know you're a very busy man all around the world doing all manner of fantastic things. Um, Just for those people who who don't know, uh, Jens and I met earlier this year, although I think we've probably been aware of one another for some time in um, journalistic circles. And uh, we met in Namibia, when was it? It was the summer this year, Jens? It was in June, and, yeah. and thank you for having me here. Yeah, no, no, it's a pleasure. Is, yeah, really it's a, exciting. It's yeah. a pleasure. No, I, the meeting you in in Namibia was well. I mean, it was a great trip uh, from start to finish. We were there testing non-lead ammunition for Norma, which fits perfectly into part of the the discussion that we're going to be having today uh, with the right. lead lead ammunition debate. But the one thing that really struck me, having a chance to find, you know have a conversation with you over that week was that we definitely shared a train of thought with regards to conservation and hunting and how that should be portrayed in the media and how it's not being portrayed in the media. So it's uh, it'll be a really good opportunity for us today to get those thoughts out into the, into the wider media. But before we get into the sort of real nitty gritty and the, the hard core of conservation and hunting and all the facts and figures... I thought we'd start with something slightly more lighthearted. Now, I know that you were part of um, a social experiment, I suppose you would call it, with this castaway project up um, west of Harris. Yeah, that's tell, true. Tell me, tell me about that. How did that come about um, and the experience? How was that for you? Well, it was. Um, we were a couple of, of European uh, gun and outdoor riders who were invited to what we basically thought was a... A, a deer hunt, a stag hunt on um, on the Isle of Harris, or rather on a small island off the Isle of Harris. Um, and we were taken by surprise because it turned out that these three days of hunting were not, in fact, three days of, of hunting with a nice lodge on, on the coast. It was a surprise uh, survival course led by an uh, ex SAS survival trainer. So that was something entirely different and an experience that I really personally learned a lot from. I think everybody there did. It was um, it was a new experience and and a nice thing for a traveling hunter to um, to uh, to learn to actually learn uh, quite a lot about how to uh, to cope in uh, unforeseen uh, situations like that. So it was completely uh different you could say yeah 
So I, I was just going to say, um, I, I've spent a lot of time on the the West Coast and particularly the islands, and there there isn't an awful lot there. If uh, if I'm being honest, some of the islands don't even have trees because it's that windy. Um, some of them won't have rabbits or anything. So I mean, <laughs> how how what was the sort of survival situation? You were you were given nothing, weren't you, apart from the the clothes that you stood up in and a rifle. Yeah, we had nothing, and and unfortunately, unfortunately, we also had rules because there was plenty of sheep on that island, so surviving <laughs> wouldn't have been that difficult. Um, but we were not allowed to shoot the sheep, and uh, hinds and calves were still out of season, uh, and six hunters had one uh, stalker with them, so. So um, we were a bit limited in the uh, hunting possibilities. To be honest, I'm I'm um, I'm quite certain that we were not actually meant to uh, to shoot a stack uh, the, the first evening because then the experience would have been quite different. So um, I think I think think things worked out exactly as the organizer wanted it to. So we shot a stack, one stack for the whole group the last morning, and actually. We- went without food for two and a half days. Um, so we collected some, some seashells on the beach and um, basically learned how to uh, start fires in wet, windy, uh, um, put up shelters, uh, purify water, all that kinds of stuff that, that, uh, that you don't normally get to, uh, to experience. Um, but you never know. When when the uh, situation arises and it's uh, we we had we had a bit of a difficult situation there actually because we took shelter on the on the mountainside and as you said it's very very windy there was no trees whatsoever um, and on the first night we had uh, the remains of a hurricane coming over the island so we had quite a, a, a stormy night there uh, under a top which was. Not what the organizer expected, but we had the uh, the real survival experience at least for a couple of hours there on the mountain. <laughs> no, I, I actually saw the pictures of your top. It didn't quite look as dry and comfortable <laughs> as the tent that we've uh, Daryl and I have been staying in this week. But tell me, did did everybody? I mean, I, um, I I don't I didn't know. I knew a couple of the, the the people who you were there with, but not everybody. Did everybody cope well with it and sort of take it in their stride or? Were there a few people that uh, were sweating a bit in the in the circumstances? Although obviously your life was never at risk because you yeah, you had I mean we, we we had a we had a single uh, single sort of semi casualty. Uh, we lost a Spanish rider on the first day. He twisted his knee, um, and I did offer actually to use one of my three uh, bullets on him, but but. Uh, <laughs> It turned it turned out that they actually had an Arco cat, so he was evacuated um, on on the first evening. But otherwise, everybody coped well, very well. Um, and we met up with the guy afterwards, and he was he was still breathing and still happy. And uh, no, every everybody uh, coped very well. So, um, and as the uh, survival instructor told us, um, it's not really a problem to cope without food for for three weeks. Uh, actually so and, and we only did a, a little less than three days so everything was fine with us and was, was plenty was, of water on the island no. as well yeah i was just i was just going to ask you so so i mean as a survival experience um you know there was plenty of food there was plenty of water but the one thing um it's the weather is always going to get you that's the thing i mean if you don't have a proper yeah. shelter the weather is going to get you no matter what you're wearing <laughs> exactly Exactly. It's, it's as 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 he said. He was he was being very uh, frank with us from the very beginning, and he focused very much on the rule of three. He called it: you can survive three minutes without oxygen, you can survive three hours without shelter, three days without water, and three weeks without food. So. Those those were our priorities, and we had plenty of oxygen. I can tell you that. <laughs> Now, just before um, I, I just realized that the other thing that I wanted to speak to you about so that people could get an idea of where you've come from um, before we start talking about things like the ethics of hunting and trophy hunting is, is your background. Because I, I know from uh, speaking to you that and I was maybe a little bit surprised, it's you don't come from a background where, you know, lots and lots of hunting was fully ingrained in you know, every part of your upbringing. 
So can you just no. tell us what your story is and, and how you ended up where you are now as you know editor of a, a big hunting magazine and you know hunting all around the world? Absolutely. Um, no, I grew up in a family without any hunting traditions whatsoever. We don't have any ancestors who ever hunted. I mean, we do, but um, like everybody else, it's it's 200 years ago or something like that. We don't know it, know a lot about that. So my parents, my grandparents, none of them have ever been hunters. Actually, my father is a keen anti-hunter, um, to be honest. Um, not so much that that um, that he uh, he hates me or doesn't want to see me, but we have a lot of pretty hefty discussions and um, he's not eating anything I shoot. So that's about the level I'm, um, I'm challenged with. It's, it's, it's quite, quite friendly, but, but uh, hectic sometimes. Close to home. Um, <laughs> so, so I grew up on, on my parents' uh, farm and uh, uh, north, of, north of Copenhagen in Denmark. And obviously there was plenty of wildlife there. And um, we had this... Uh, this uh, farmhand uh, helping us out who was a hunter and, and um, my father had to allow this old man to uh, to keep on hunting on half the property and obviously little Jens went out hunting with him and um, and got interested and, and and developed an interest in firearms as well so that was how I kind of slipped into the uh, the uh, hunting world. And in Denmark, you're allowed to um, to take your license when you're 16. I did that to my father's regret. Um, and then I um, then I got my first firearms and simply started hunting. Um, when I was 20 something, three. 24, uh, something like that. I um, I started my own hunting magazine in Denmark, a printed magazine. And uh, as much as my father hates hunting, he liked the idea of of me getting into um, into the uh, media world. So uh, he actually um, went into business with me. So we established a company called Jens Hø and Father Limited. Um, to uh, to publish this hunting magazine, uh, and this was in the uh, mid '90s. So that's how I got into the uh, hunting media. My my background is is more technical. I studied to be a mechanical engineer, civil engineer, <clears throat> which has helped me a lot um, in in regards to to all the uh, technical issues. I'm still very much interested in that, but. My hunting passion took over, I guess you could say, and um, it's for, for me, it's more and more uh, big game hunting with the rifle around the world, and it's more and more um, trying to, to get the, um, the positive sides of hunting uh, exposed. Jens, we, we lost you for a moment there. That's the, the, the beauty of long-range connections when we don't have somebody in the studio, but you were just saying that your focus these days tends to be big game hunting with a rifle. Yeah. Um, I, I, um, I hardly hunt with my shot, hunt with my shotgun anymore. Actually. Um, we moved to uh, Sweden a couple of years ago and we don't have a lot of small game here. So it's, it's been more and more the rifle and I'm traveling more and more as well. Um, and also focusing very hard on, on the um, on, on on trying to expose all the uh, positive sides of, of, of hunting in, in, in mainstream media, actually. But I think we'll get back to that later. Um, so so for now, I am I'm more and more a, 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 a traveling big game hunter, you could say. Um, I would I would actually like to take up uh, uh, small game hunting more. But um, I don't really have the opportunity to do that. So, um, so my focus is on the big game at the moment. Yeah. Well, I think that leads us nicely into one of the topics, which was, it may, it may seem a little bit dated now, but I, I, you are the perfect person to speak to about this because I know that you did appear, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Danish TV talking about Cecil Line. Yeah. 
Um, um, I mean, the Cecil the Lion story, a lot of time has passed since that story but, first came out. But we, came keep, out. we keep coming back to it because of the importance of it. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah. It has changed a lot in the the way public perception is about big game hunting, or certainly brought it to the forefront. And now that a bit of time has passed, we now have, I think we pretty much have the true story, which is quite far removed from the story that came out in the sort of sens- sensationalist media. But what was what was your take of it then? Now, and you know, I, I, I unfortunately I, I couldn't uh, understand what you were saying. No. Although, although I did watch your interview because well, it wasn't in English. <laughs> No, exactly. No, my my take on it uh, in in the beginning was that I was being uh, uh, very skeptical to uh, to to the old uh, story from from the very beginning because it struck me that um, some some of some of the uh, so-called facts that that came up in the media just couldn't be uh, couldn't be true. So so I was being very skeptical and and basically didn't want to comment on the uh, specific case on on those grounds because it was it was very confused my suspicion as i said on on tv was that i <clears throat> i thought that this was more or less uh, i suspected that this was more or less a, a very normal uh, line hunt in zimbabwe that had been blown totally out of proportions and um eventually it turned out to be exactly that um so so i was more or less commenting on on uh, lion hunting in in general and uh, my my stance then and and now is that um it's extremely important that we keep hunting the lions hunting the elephants hunting the, the rhinos hunting all the animals uh, that that we that we can in in a sustainable sustainable manner. I mean, we built up a system over the last four decades that is so important to uh, to conservation, to the uh, funding of of the conservation effort that it's it's uh, we would basically kill uh, kill the the African wildlife and its habitats if we just dump that system now. Um, and I see absolutely um, no reason other than uh, than hysteria to uh, to to uh, to create the kind of shitstorms we've seen. Sizzle the lion is, is is only one of them. I mean, we have we had several such. Yeah, we we've had the, I mean, the, the elephant recently. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we were speaking to David about the yeah. elephant. Forty, you know, in our media, we, we uh, you, you know, it, ca- it came out like they'd shot the last great tusker, but. I mean, the truth is that a lot of the well, we'll maybe we'll talk about the elephant situation in Africa in, in a little while. I think because it's it's very different yeah. to what the public perception is. But that was another example of sensationalist headlines without any substance and making people think think with their heart and emotions as opposed to their head. Exactly, and 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 the mainstream media unfortunately loves loves that because they they struck a nerve. I mean, when they can give. A name to an animal like sizzle, or, or for some peculiar reason, if the uh, hunter is is a, a non-standard trophy hunter, uh, especially if it's a woman, um, mm. then then you have the uh, shitstorm going already. Um, so you can have you can have a hundred sweaty men, uh, Russian billionaires sitting by their their trophies without nothing happen. But if you have one good-looking girl. Killing a giraffe, then you have your shitstorm going. I mean, yeah, I mean yeah. this is this is uh, no, nobody can predict when and where. Just that they want to sell a lot of newspapers. Well, um, it's it, it's easy to sell a newspaper if you've got a pretty girl standing next to something dead, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, because it shocks people and it's not what they expect. It's I mean, the, it's 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 a good recipe for for uh, big big numbers. I mean, they they. Um, and they know this all over the world. So, so uh, we as hunters have to really start thinking hard about how to uh, prevent these uh, these uh, shitstorms because the frequency is is increasing. Um, it's it's once a month now. Uh, and, um, and and I guess that would probably go hand in hand with your own social media management. 
of what you put online because everybody knows that if you put a picture up that might be distasteful to the rest of the world on social media, there's a high chance it could be picked up and used against you. So I guess as a hunter, you've actually got to be very thoughtful of what you put out there yourself. We, we see that a lot, Jens, and I'm sure you probably see it uh, from your, you know, your side of the pond as well where we see pictures on social media coming from British, some of them I wouldn't even really call hunters, but people involved in, in shooting. And we all know exactly what's entailed in it, and we all know what the end result is. But there is, you know, there is, a, way to, there is a way to approach it, and I think that there are quite a number of people that seem to certainly, from their so- social media profile, glorify the gore of hunting and that is uh, that has nothing to do with hunting apart from the fact that it, it is damages a process it. That, that you've you've got to go through everybody knows that there's blood and you know what happens when you yeah. actually kill something but you're not glorifying that that is a byproduct of the end result and it's not what exactly glorified i mean I, I do you see that as well we see that a lot uh um, Unfortunately, you you don't need to uh, to pass an IQ test to become a hunter, do you? I mean, to be frank, some 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 of these guys are really stupid and they are really stubborn in their their insisting to uh, to, uh, to to show the uh, the, the goriest uh, picture that they can come up with, uh, constructing more or less um, really really graphic images just to uh, provoke the public because they. Th- think it's their right but they're doing a whole lot of damage to uh, to our cause to the uh, hunting cause i mean this is uh, this is this is actually more damaging to us than than a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff the antis are doing because it comes from within uh, we cannot deny that they have a hunting license um, and and we are really putting a lot of efforts that could be used better otherwise in in uh, explaining and and uh, and uh, disting, distancing ourselves from from that kind of, of, of stuff and it, it takes a lot of, of, of effort and it's it's really it's, it's it's really bad but I don't think there's any way to avoid it unfortunately it's it's uh, it's a very small minority of hunters who, who act this way but they simply won't go away. Uh, and the more we tell them to go away, the more stubborn they get. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. Um, and I think, you know, as a as a hunting public as a whole, we just need to be very clear of the fact that those type of people and the activities that they're involved in, and even if you want to extend that to, you know, to the furthest degree, there are some people with hunting licenses who are involved in illegal activities, as you have yeah. in any sector society, they yeah. are not part of our group. And if exactly. they want to do that, they must realize that they will get absolutely no support from us. And and when they get caught, yeah. they should be prosecuted. Yeah, I mean, I've got no problem with increasing the punishments for illegal activities. I, I've always said that there are some laws, and we're going to talk about you know potential new laws that are going to uh, come in soon, that may be wrong as far as we're concerned. We may not agree with them, but we have to work within the system of the law, whatever country you're in. If you don't agree with it, it doesn't mean you should break it. It means you should work hard to change it. And I think people need yeah, to realize exactly. that. Exactly. And and it, it's, it's, a, it's a culture thing because, because um, I think most of the hunters are now slowly realizing that we cannot hide it anymore. Um, a lot of the hunters in Scandinavia has been hiding uh, for years and years, especially before social media really grew strong. Um, if nobody talked about the um, uh, uh, the, uh, the the downside of hunting, then it wasn't really a problem. But now with social media, everybody has to um, to decide for himself or herself uh, what what we're going to do about the situation and. And we really, as you say, need to distance ourselves from from anything, first of all, illegal, uh, unethical, um, and stupid. I mean, a lot of this is is, is plain stupidity, um, and and it's it's simply not acceptable in in the current situation because all of us are under great pressure. I mean, 
there, there's 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 really the the anti hunters uh, are well organized and they have an easy job. It's very easy to agitate a lot of uh, non hunters uh, with with the right pictures, and it's it's very difficult for us as hunters to do the opposite. Um, because we do kill animals, um, and we do do it because it's it's a passion for us. I mean, the anti anti hunters always say we do it for fun, just to to um, to use the uh, the lowest expression they can. But but there is a grain of truth in it because we do not do it because we have to. We do it because it's our passion, it's our lifestyle, it's something we want to use our spare spare time for so so from from that angle um we have a challenge and and as you say that challenge is not becoming smaller with idiots in our own ranks not appreciating uh that we um that we have to think now it, um, it, it makes it easier for them if all the information's laid out on social media. They, they don't need to look hard because some idiots posted something and they go, hang on, look what he's done. And, and they've given it to him. Exactly. <laughs> and like I said, exactly. you know, they're not it part happens of... all the time. Hmm. And just to pick up on something you were saying there, you're absolutely right. You know, we enjoy what we do. You, you can't deny that. We're not doing it because we, we don't enjoy it. I love to no. hunt. But I don't take, and I, I've said this before, I'm repeating something I, I said in another podcast, I think it, w- it was pro- probably with uh, David a couple of weeks ago, is I, I really enjoy hunting, but I don't take any enjoyment out of the taking of life. But that is a no. byproduct of hunting, and it's always as part of part of a management plan, and there there is an end game and the end result. And that end result is I'm putting food in my stomach that I know exactly what's happened to it from start to finish. And you're right, we don't have yeah. to do it. We can go to the supermarket. Anybody can go to the supermarket. But my point is, and I, I'm sure that you'll agree with this, is that as hunters, we are 100% in touch with our own destiny, if you like, of survival. And we don't have to do it because yeah. the supermarket is just around the corner. But anybody who is happy to go into a supermarket and take you know, meat from the counter can't really criticize somebody who is prepared to go and take that meat from its live form and put it in your fridge. Absolutely not. This 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 is just a matter of of taking responsibility for the meat on your plate. I mean, if if you just go to the supermarket, pick up the uh, the, the meat, you are as much a killer as as anybody uh, in that chain. I mean, um, because if 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 people stop eating meat tomorrow, no animals will be killed for meat. I mean, it's 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 really that simple. So so what we do as hunters is simply uh, taking a responsibility for for the meat we eat, um, and and uh, I think that's 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 a very important point for us to uh, to to press because the ones buying it in the supermarkets has no idea what kind of life and what kind of death those animals had. Um, and still they're causing the animal's death by buying the meat. Yeah, so so it's, um, yeah, simply, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's much more simple than, than, uh, than, than people like to think. Um, and, and as you said about, about the killing, um, I do not know a single hunter Honestly, and I know literally hundreds of hunters. I do not know a single one who takes pleasure in actually killing. Um, it's 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 an acceptable part of the chain. It's it's uh, it's it's a part of hunting. It's not the uh, main part of hunting, but it's definitely a necessary part of the chain from from the woods to uh, to, to the plates, and 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 it's. It's something we accept. It's something we can live with. And, and I think that's where we lose a lot of non-hunters because they are so far away from, from the concept of killing things that they simply cannot understand our acceptance. Um, and they confuse it with, with, with joy. Um, so instead of, instead of us realizing the facts of, of, of life uh, and, and death, um, 
it becomes us killing for fun, for which pleasure, is two yeah. two very very different things. Uh, yeah. And and of course they don't see it when you go out and you you're going to hunt a deer. They don't see you walking on the hill for seven hours shooting it in the and no. it's raining sideways then you have to get it down and it's another four or five hours getting it off the hill and you know you've had to put a whole day potentially a few days of effort to get your food <laughs> exactly no no they and that's the problem because they see the uh, they see the picture of, of the hunter and the dead animal and that's it um and this is this is this is where this is where we and especially uh, um uh, film producing guys like you uh, have have a big job because you work in a media where you can actually show uh, the the efforts that are put into to a hunt much better than than a picture of a dead animal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's one of the one of the things we as hunters should be focusing even more on to tell the the whole story because that's that's what the journal public is is missing yeah no um, i think you're right you know uh, they, they sorry sorry yeah. no they, they just they just get the uh, gory pictures that's it yeah no uh, I mean, we were talking about this with david a couple of weeks back and you know there there has been a number of films come out recently that have gone to a lot of effort to really show the story now there, there's a lot of uh, yeah. hunting clips out there if you go on youtube and google the internet You'll find a lot of uh, hunting stuff which is just focused on the death. That's yeah, that's yeah. all. It and is. and that I think I, that really hasn't helped hunting because it is basically amplified the one part of it which the media can pick up uh, and do exactly what you you've been talking about, which is make it look like it's entirely for pleasure. And how ca- I mean to be totally fair about it, I mean how can you say that it's anything other than if that's the only thing that you're putting up? If you're only putting up exactly. the death, surely that must be the only thing that you care about because that's what you've put up yeah. on the internet. But there are a few guys out there who are putting together films now that really show the story. And that is what hunting is all about, the story. But I tell you, I just want to backtrack a little bit because uh, I'm conscious of the fact that we, we didn't really cover this in detail when we were talking about Cecil the Line. Uh, we kind of just glossed over it. Was mm. that that part of it and, and big game hunting has connotations of trophy hunting. Now, trophy yeah. hunting is the one thing uh, that is picked up in the media. That, that's why they've shown pictures of Cecil. That's why they showed pictures of the, you know, the, the big elephant that was shot. I think that was in Zimbabwe yeah. as well, yeah, which it was, was the, yeah. the, the biggest elephant in, in modern times that's, that's been shot and certainly plastered yeah. over social media. And it's the reason why you have the females, uh, your attractive females lying down with their giraffes, because it's, it's a trophy picture. Yeah. The justification for trophy hunting, I mean, there is a long list of justification, but wh- I mean, what's your take on it? If you're, if you're asked to justify trophy hunting to a room full of general public who think that trophy hunting is simply barbaric because people just want stuff on their wall, I mean, what do you say to them, Jens? I think it's very uh, important to, um, to, to, uh, to not mix everything up. Um, I think the single hunter's motives to go hunting is basically um, doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's 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 if if you have a hundred hunters, you have a hundred motives for 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 hunting, and it's not really important to me why they go hunting. So there might be some hunters who are very very tro- uh, trophy. Um, uh, focused on, on on the trophies, and there is definitely a lot of hunters who are very focused on the uh, total experience. My take on trophy hunting is that um, it's such an important way to fund uh, wildlife ha- wildlife habitat, wildlife protection uh, all over the world. Uh, that that is priority one. I mean, it's it's a good way to get money. And the trophy hunting is a good way for the um, for the communities around the world to manage their their wild game populations. Um, and what the uh, individual hunter thinks and why he does it. I mean, probably uh, there is a lot of assholes among hunters as there are good people. Um, so 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 why bother as long as the end result is conservation and really there's no alternative um there's no alternative funding in place anyway so so i don't 
I do not really understand this focus on the individual hunter's motives um, because I really honestly think it doesn't matter um, at all. You know that uh, people listening to this will probably think that you and I have had this discussion 10 minutes before coming on the podcast because... <laughs> but Byron has it, mentioned it, it, exactly a, the same it's thing. A total echo of what I said maybe two months ago on, on another podcast. And I, okay. so obviously I totally agree with you. The individual motives of the person is neither here nor there if the, the end result is, as you said, part of conservation, part of a management plan. You can yeah. detest the individual person. I can detest them as a hunter. You can detest them as a hunter. But you can't yeah. detest the process of trophy hunting. Because it exactly. has a greater good, and it, and, it, and there's there's a lot of rules and regulations in place here. So so we know that in general, uh, the the end result is very positive. Um, of course, there's mishaps and there's uh, corruption here and there. And there's all kinds of problems, but we know from four decades of experience that this is a very very efficient way to protect wildlife end of story um and and i can i can look at at some american hunter or some russian hunter sitting in his um, his big hall and trophies and i can think okay um this guy could just as easily be a stamp collector but why do i care i mean he he literally paid millions and millions of dollars uh, directly to wildlife conservation um so so honestly i don't care my take on trophy hunting is that i i actually i keep uh most of the trophies uh from 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 the hunts i'm on uh as a memento um i'm not really interested in in, in sizes and and uh medals and and what have you but why would i care if anybody else is interested in that not at all i mean uh they, they 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 can do as as they want as long as the end result is just what it is conservation. Uh, and of course, it's not just conservation, uh, especially in Africa as well. It's employment as well. Huge amount of employment goes with these hunts. Definitely, and 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 I mean, if you have if you have trophy hunting, you need to have big uh, game populations, and with big game population, you need to manage them. So, so in, in, in either case, you need to, uh, to take out a lot of animals. You need to, um, to distribute a lot of meat, which is desperately needed on that continent. So there's a lot of, 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 uh, of super positive sides to this. Um, and, and, and the hunter's motives is, is by far uh, the, the least important aspect of this. Um, I mean, I think a good example of how a good example of the effect is Zambia closed hunting for two years. Yeah. Uh, I think it was 2012 to 2014. I might be a year out. I can't quite remember. I have my notes in front of me. But... Yeah, something like that. And they closed it because of the same reasons that Botswana have closed now. <laughs> uh, pressures from anti-hunting groups and uh, Green Party type people in, in their parliaments. They very quickly yeah. turned that around and opened it up again because their population in the rural communities were starving. And it, it's, just, it's, it's that simple fact. Their population were begging them to open up hunting again because the, all, most of those hunting concessions, and this is true across most of Africa, part of the agreement of having those hunting concessions is that they give a certain proportion of their meat away. I, I know in Botswana and Namibia it certainly was 50% or it had to be at least 50%. Yeah. And in some of those places, apart from fish... There's no other source of protein. So if you're not being given the protein, you then have to make money to buy the protein. But now there is no employment either. So they literally were starving. And so they had to open up hunting again. And on top of that, as you know, if you don't have employment in areas and you're hungry, the first thing you do is go and poach. The bushmeat trade, uh, the snares, gin traps, you name it, any kind of iron work that's going to catch animals... And it's all very indiscriminate. There's obviously no management involved in trapping animals in that way. That goes on. And your populations don't go up because you're not hunting. They crash. And that's simple facts. And I don't know why people who are very happy to jump on the bandwagon to bash hunting don't just take the few minutes to make sure that they are, you know, 
t- talking about the right things and they've actually looked at the right facts because these numbers are out there and there's been some very good reports. There was a, a university in America actually used the two-year closure of Zambia as a, a study for protein intake and employment and population of game in those areas during this closure. And the evidence is there. I'll uh, I'll put the link in the podcast at the end to say which university yeah. it was and where you can get the, the information from. But, I mean, it's facts. Yeah, but absolutely facts. And as I said, it's it's four decades of, of experience from especially all over Africa, uh, not only Africa, actually, but, but uh, no, it's, it's, it's very, very simple facts. And the, uh, the really amazing thing here is that there's hardly any exceptions. Um, the countries who embrace uh, managed trophy hunting as a way to fund uh, wildlife and wildlife habitats are are experiencing uh, excre- uh, increasing populations and the uh, countries who ban the trophy hunting industry are experiencing the opposite. Poaching uh, and, and populations are, are, are dropping. Uh, I mean, this is, it happens again and again and again. And, and still we have this pressure. And, and I think it's really, it's really scary to think that for some of these green, so-called green organizations, they are more focused on individual hunters' motives than on conservation, um, because they have the figures as well. Um, they know what happened in Kenya when they banned hunting. They know what happened in South Africa when they really uh, decided to uh, to invest heavily in the hunting industry. Um, and country by country, you have the facts all the way, and still they are mainly focused on individual hunters' motives, or rather, the anti-hunters' perception of the uh, the hunters' motives. And and that's scary because I find it a lot more interesting to actually save the last rhinos, lions, elephants, what have you, than to start a big ethical. Uh, discussion about who is the worst person and who is the best person i mean that that's completely uh, uninteresting yeah you uh, I, I couldn't remember what the example was but i remember you gave me a really good example of a species that had been saved somewhere in one of the stan countries i can't remember if it was a type of ibex or, or... no it's uh it's 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 the world's biggest wild goat the markhor uh, markhor yeah sorry yeah um and and the situation for the Marco, the Marco is in in Central Asia and all those little uh, mountainous Stan uh, countries out there, and and the thing was that the uh, local population simply saw them as competitors to their to their sheep and, and goat, their their livestock, so they poached them for for meat um, uh, to the brink of extinction. Um, and this Danish trophy hunter, this is actually quite a while ago. It must have been at least two decades ago. He went there because he really wanted to hunt a Marco. And they were so close to extinction that there was not a chance that he would get a, a CITES permit for that. Um, so instead, he went there uh, and he went to the best and, and one of the last areas where, where these animals live. This was in Pakistan. And he um, he gave the um, the local chief um, or warlord or whatever you call it uh, a, a big amount of money in order to stop poaching the markhors. And he told them that he would come back every year and give him a similar amount until there was enough markhors to hunt. And this actually worked out. So uh, I don't know how many years later he actually got the uh, the first Markhor license through CITES because the uh, population exploded. Suddenly it was worth something not to poach the Markhors. And, and by now the uh, all the subspecies of Markhors are increasing. They just uh, downgraded the uh, threat level um, so it's not as uh, critically endangered as it was, and they're issuing a few licenses every year to, uh, to, to fund all this. This is a huge success story. 
um, actually bringing back uh, a species from the brink of extinction to not by now a fully a fully healthy big uh, population, but we're absolutely getting there uh, fast. And and it's kept sustainable through hunting. Yeah, only through hunting because I mean, who in their right mind would go to uh, to the center of uh, Pakistani mountains to 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 trek to be an eco tourist? Nobody dares to do that. Only only hunters are stupid enough to to travel to uh, dangerous places of their world to to follow their passion. I mean, no nobody else is is. Uh, is, is spending a dollar there nobody yeah it's it, you know that's that's an interesting point because the one thing that always gets thrown up you know whether it's at, it's mainly africa that this comes up but it would be true of any part yeah. of the world is you know why do you have to kill it why can't you take a picture of it let's 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 revert from from hunting to ecotourism and take people in uh, on photographic um, safaris and they'll take pictures of it but what a lot of people don't realize is firstly the ratio and again these numbers are out there. You can go and check. The ratio is about 10 to 1. So you need about 10 uh, photographic safari individuals for one hunter to bring in the same amount of income. But secondly, the footprint and damage that they actually cause to the environment is obviously 10 times more because you need 10 times the amount of people for the same amount of income coming into that area. And lastly, these photographic safaris tend to nine times out of ten occur in the areas where the highest densities of population are so they never really get to these in, far in, remote in the national rural, parks yeah mainly in the, a lot of them are in the yeah. national parks um which are funded through wildlife organizations anyway so all these concessions like botswana is a perfect example of it most of those hunting concessions now are closed down because there's no hunting anymore one or two of them have stayed open for photographic safaris but where are they they are where the highest densities of population are so now there is nobody looking after those areas that you know would have hunters in you know, week on week they would be managed no. for populations and of course and this is the one thing that people often don't realize is that those people who had the hunting concessions spend a huge amount of time um, investment in in personnel and money throughout the year picking up poaching um, ironwork to prevent Absol- animals from dying Absolutely. And, and another thing um, which people don't realize is that when you put a lot of value on an animal for a trophy hunter, uh, it means that you need a lot of animals. You need a big population to, uh, to get to the point where you have old bulls to hunt. Um, and the good thing about trophy hunting here is that you actually – you actually have to have these big population because you do kill animals off the top. If you d- didn't kill the animals, you don't, you did, you wouldn't need the big populations. For instance, if you, if you're just taking pictures, I mean, you can take a million pictures of the same elephant bull, mm. and you don't need a lot of elephants to do that. You basically need one national park with a good population. But if you, if you have a hunting industry and you want to take out 100 elephant bulls a year, then you need 100 times more elephants in total than for just taking pictures in, in, in the national park. So, so it's, 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 it's very important to, to, uh, to, to the discussion that, that it's actually a good thing that hunting is, is, uh, is actually it's necessary to kill animals in order to have hunted and because of that you need a much much larger population which needs much much larger uh, areas to live in mm-hmm. and it's 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 very simple um but still true and as you said uh, take south africa you have four or five uh, national parks in in relatively uh, confined spaces which covers everything i mean if if they only wanted eco tourism they they didn't need more than that um that's that's for me the big difference and uh, it's important to, to mention I mean, we talk about africa quite it comes up quite a lot because it, it's a very good example of a lot of things that we want to demonstrate but 
yeah. everything that we've been talking about can be rolled out across the rest of the, uh, the rest of the world and across the rest of the the game species that are that are around i mean absolutely you, we don't have the same problem that they have with poaching over there because we have a a much richer population over here in, in the uk but everything that we've talked about still stands you know whether you're talking about an elephant in africa or you know a majestic red stag in the highlands it needs to have a value to stay there because if it didn't have a value they would shoot all of the deer and they'd put sheep on the hill that's the bottom line definitely and and the next problem and that's also true for the for for the whole world is that uh hunting sustains these huge huge hunting uh, areas um but it's not only it's not only game animals living there. I mean, you have all the birds, you have all the plants, you have all the insects, you have everything that the hunter is not really hunting for, but is entirely dependent on these habitats as well. Um, so, so it's 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 extremely important that we find ways to put value on wildlife uh, and hunting at the moment is by far the best and most efficient way to do that in in most places of the world yeah you, you were just talking there about obviously the birds the insects the uh the plant life and everything like that and that that's a, th- a thing that always bugs me uh with wildlife charities is that they only are concerned about specific species but yet they don't care about all the bugs the you know no, they certainly all... never mention it it's yeah. never in the headlines no i mean a good example is no. we've actually and we'll put a link uh, to this as well in the in the podcast as we've just made a film uh for the angus glens merlin group based on three reports that were done in scotland on different estates and they were reports on biodiversity and they're all on on managed areas so ma- either purely managed grouse moors or a combination or of um grouse, grouse and, and deer, deer. Mm. and and the numbers are there and they're they're raw and they're factual and they've been done by ecologists and the numbers don't lie and those numbers tell you no. that on those managed areas there are a huge number of both insects and birds and mammals which in other areas that are not managed are in decline or they're amber or red listed species that are doing very very well in those in those managed areas i mean they they they, Absolutely. they, they found a moth that they haven't seen for 40 years up here yeah just, just <laughs> up the road from where we yeah. live yeah uh, and it's all these these insects and um and birds that that the animal charities i mean here for example hen harriers that's all they bang on about mainly for birds of prey is where are the hen harriers who's killed this um why isn't yeah, this yeah. being managed just for hen harriers and it's obviously important i mean everybody wants wants to see them and it's obviously an important species and it is a keystone species but uh, the point I guess Daryl is coming across is, is it's often the only thing you see in the media. And it's there are other species you could come up with as well that, that are key species that, that, that are, they come up with. Yeah, and but they don't talk about the vast spectrum. You know, they don't talk and about... I, I guess, you, you, I'm, I mean, do you have the same problem over there in Scandinavia? Yeah, um, especially in Denmark and southern Sweden where we have a lot of agriculture because... In our areas, I mean, you, you have two alternatives. Either you try to to uh, to to um, to have some some natural areas for 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 the game, uh, or you have a monoculture uh, of wheat or barley or or pine forest or something which doesn't support really anything. Um, so it's it's it's. There's there's an extreme difference between managed hunting areas and farmland or or forest uh, managed for for wood production. Um, so we have exactly the uh, the same situation here, and exactly as as in uh, in the UK, um, the greens tend to focus very narrowly. Um, in Sweden, the big subject is wolves, so everything is about the wolf. Um, where, where, I mean, in 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 order to to sustain a, a moose population or population of red deer or roe deer or whatever, we need some 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 pretty good uh, and diverse habitat, um, and we're talking thousands of species, um, and not only wolves, but but it's exactly the same here. The the, the focus is very narrow, and I think it's because it's 
it's more it's e- easier for 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 the non-hunter to to understand that hen harriers are are supposed to be endangered or we should do some more for the wolves or or whatever they need these uh, totem uh, animals to to focus on because because otherwise it gets too complicated. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that, but you, you took the word out of my mouth there. If you focus on the spectrum that is really important, and you need a spectrum from the smallest to the biggest, it becomes very complicated to get that message across. So yeah, exactly what you said. Yeah. If you can focus on one species in terms of getting the public on side, whatever your message, uh, you know, you, whatever the message is that you want it to be, it's yeah. a lot a lot easier to get that across if you've just got this one name that you can hold up. So yeah, it's it's an interesting one that we did um, a podcast. It's actually it's not out yet, not while we're recording this on fishing last week. And one thing that uh, did make me chuckle when we we when we weren't talk, talking about birds, we were obviously talking about about fish. It was about uh, fish and aquaculture. And there's an area in Glen Clover. I'm sure they were talking about Glen Clover uh, on the South Esk where they wanted to do a lot of replanting. This is on the Fisheries Trust that I'm, that I'm on. Uh, replanting to shore up banks to reduce the amount of silt going in, which covers fish eggs. And they obviously have to speak yeah. with uh, a number of interested bodies. There's Forestry Commission up there, there's RSPB, there's Woodland Trust, you know, you name it. There's, there's a, no, a lot of interesting, uh, sorry, in, there's a lot of interested, interested parties, parties uh, up there that you have yeah. to negotiate with. And the one thing that came out was that they didn't want trees planted in certain areas. because no, Who didn't want trees planted in certain areas? Well, Marshall, <laughs> I, I haven't confirmed this with him, but what Marshall said in the podcast was that the RSPB didn't want trees planted in certain areas because they would be good for raptors and they didn't want the raptors predating on the waders that were in the bottom of the valley, you know, on the, on the wet mm. sort of marshland. Yeah. But, you know, where do you pick and choose? Because, you know, waders do very well and on managed grouse moors. And yeah. as a result of that, so do the birds of prey which predate on them. And now they don't want trees to be planted because it'll be good for the, the predators, which they're always banging on about in the, in the media. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. can't, you know, decide, decide <laughs> what you want. And it's, it seems that sometimes it's, you know, it's convenient to sort of micromanage the, the habitat in terms of what impact we can have and then other times with other organizations it's stand back and leave it alone and and you know yeah, do, yeah, yeah. let it do as it pleases so yeah there's a lot of contradictions going there but that did make me did make me smile when i thought I thought of that because it's it's mainly in terms of the the public perception it is mainly raptors and birds of prey that are that are talked about and yet in this particular instance they didn't want to do something that would have actually benefited them because then they would go and eat <laughs> other species which were, you know, red and amber listed. They, so. they do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, right. Um, oh, we've covered so much so far. I think the last part that I, that I wanted to touch on with regard to conservation and hunters was to just express the fact that although the public probably don't realize it, there's been some some of the biggest hunters in history have also been the biggest conservationists. Teddy Roosevelt, yeah, I mean, he was responsible for setting up the national park system in America. I bet you a lot of Americans don't even know that. And the no. fact that he probably was one of the biggest hunters that has ever lived. I mean, he did massive safaris. A lot of the stuff that's in a, in museums around the world is as a result of safaris that Teddy Roosevelt did. Salou, Salou Game Reserve. Again, you can if you Google Salou, the first thing you'll come up with is hunting. And of course, Corbett. I mean, Jim Corbett, one of the... I, I, I would be surprised if anybody killed any more man-eating lions and leopards than Jim Corbett. But uh, I've been to his national park in India named in respect to the work that he did and you know yeah. that national park is the highest density tiger uh, in the world and only um i think it was last week um uh, sir david attenborough was talking about um uh, his new tv program the hunt and uh, the the presenter was bringing up Cecil line he and asked sir david attenborough's opinion on it and um he was saying um we we in fact we'll get hold of the clip uh, to play, but basically he was saying the first conservationists in Africa, anyway, were hunters. That that was from his mouth. They were hunters, the first conservationists. Yeah, yeah and you have you have this the same situation in uh, in Central Europe 
Um, in Scandinavia, we have we have a lot of wilderness still, so so it's not quite the same uh, situation here. But in in Central Europe, you have some of the um, some of the less popular uh, characters in history has actually done a lot for hunting. You had the uh, the German emperors, the last ones. They they set aside huge areas for for hunting purposes, which are still uh, existing today. The same with the Austro-Hungarian uh, emperors did the same. Uh, really, really keen hunters. If I recall correctly, the um, the uh, crown prince Franz Ferdinand he killed more than two hundred fifty thousand animals in his short life. So, so a hunter he was. Um, definitely a, a pretty bad person, but um, you can still in 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 the the landscape down there see. Huge areas uh, set aside for 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 wildlife due to due to these kings and emperors, um, and even Hermann Göring, uh, the head of Luftwaffe, was a, an extremely keen hunter, and uh, still today, in uh, in parts of Germany and Poland, uh, you see these huge areas that he actually set aside. Uh, he's more or less also solely responsible for the um, for the survival of the Vicent, um, the European uh, buffalo. Um, they were saved uh, on on um, on his initiative. I think that's so, a, a perfect example how you can detest the man but not detest the process. Exactly. Um, if, if, if you look at him isolated as a hunter and conservationist, he actually did a lot of good, uh, and yet he was one of the biggest a-holes in, uh, in in history, and he got what he deserved. But as a hunter and conservationist, well, um, I have no complaints there. <laughs> well, we've had to stop there. We've run out of time today. I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, speaking to Jens, and we will have him on again in two weeks' time. Now, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and you'll get it a day early. It's also available on YouTube and SoundCloud. And like we've said before, if there's anything that you want discussed on this podcast, please get in touch with us, paceproductionsuk at gmail.com. Uh, have you enjoyed today, Byron? I always thoroughly enjoy talking to Jens. Uh, the only thing uh, that bothers me is that I don't have long enough because he always has some very interesting debate and we've only heard a fraction of his stories. In fact, we haven't really heard any of his stories and he's got some fantastic stories to tell. So maybe we'll have to just get him on for a storytelling session at some point in the future. I, I, th- I think I think we will. I think all of our guests have to come back on again because they've all been thoroughly enjoyable to uh, speak to and, and you learn. You do really, really do learn a lot. Yeah, no, it's uh, you always learn speaking to people. Everyone has a different different point of view and a different way of looking at things, and uh, it's it's good. Now, we we've had a few few people ask us, um, what is a podcast? You know, we we've been telling people about this, and what is a podcast? And and there is um, especially well, our dad. For you know, you tell him what is a podcast. You go, I don't know what a podcast is. So. Tell someone about this podcast, and if they ask what it is, just explain it's it's a bit like a radio show. On-demand radio. On-demand radio, that's the best way to describe it, I guess. And introduce someone to this this show. That That's your challenge. The, the, up to Christmas, you've got to introduce someone to this show. So tell someone about it. The best Christmas present you can give, and it's <laughs> and not even going to cost you not, anything. It's not going to cost you anything. Just tell people it's, about it. it. It's free. And uh, like we said before, get in touch with us uh, on our Facebook page, Pace Brothers Into the Wilderness, or email us uh, for any topics or uh, any feedback that you have about the podcast, and uh, we will uh, we'll get back in touch with you. And if there's any guests that you want on, let us know that too. Now, I uh, said right at the end there that I would uh, get hold of the clip of uh, David Attenborough talking about uh, hunting and talking about the Cecil Line incident. So here it is. It's an extract taken from... Uh, BBC Radio 2, uh, only a f- few weeks back now. Uh, have a listen and uh, form your own opinions. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Just on the subject of where humans come into this, and a lot of people might have thought, yes, I remember that American dentist who was in the news mm. recently, Walter Palmer, I think his name mm. was, who went to Zimbabwe and he shot mm. the lion and then there was the outrage about that. When you read those stories, 
Sir David, I wonder what your reaction is, because we're, we're horrified and maybe we take a, 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 an uneducated view. I don't know, but what, what do you th take um, Well, I mean, of course, uh, he, didn't break, he didn't knowingly break the rules. Um, uh, he was under the impression that he was legally hunting a lion. Um, and um, uh, my reaction to that, as I suspect many people and yours, is, is that how, why on earth would you actually want to kill something um, and I dare say if I was a psychiatrist or a pop psychiatrist uh, you would say well it gives you the sense of power you know and, and and the sense of power is a very intoxicating thing people people relish sense of power I mean that's why people seek power and and here is power of life or death the ultimate power um, and uh, uh, so that's how you have to explain it but the notion that you should be pleased with yourself uh, because you actually did that is um, not very pleasant. I mean, this is an excuse if you've actually, as a, in terms of bushcraft, that you've outwitted a very, a very uh, clever prey. Uh, but, you know, there are so-called canned lion hunting, you know, in, in, in South Africa, where lions are deliberately bred and kept in, in, in admittedly large enclosures, but they've never been truly wild, and they are then um, shot. They are, you, you buy a licence to buy them. I mean, to say it's repugnant is putting it mildly, but it is the, it is the case. It feels like something from... A Victorian era when we looked at animals in a completely different way. Absolutely so, and and um, but it's a mistake to think that all the people, those hunters, are necessarily people, as it were, only like uh, bloodlust. Uh, many of them were, were were great naturalists. I mean, the a lot of what we know about uh, uh, carnivores and so on comes from nineteenth, twentieth century hunters who who out on foot pursued a lion and 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 shot it um, and uh, and there was a there was in the 19th century and indeed the 20th century too there were plenty of people reputable people not people to be despised who actually enjoyed killing animals but the the fun, uh, if if that's what it is, is is uh, in, in in tracking them and putting your wits against theirs and so on. And there is a certain amount of uh, um, caution you need because even if you have a gun, I mean, a lion charging you, <laughs> you better know what you're doing. So that skill. But the interesting thing is that the very very first conservation conscious charity, um, which was called uh, Fauna and Fauna. No, the, yes, the Fauna Preservation Society, some of that sort, of the British Empire, uh, was, was formed by hunters who were aware that they were be not being able to find the animals with the, the biggest horns that they, they were seeking because they were actually becoming fewer and they were, being, uh, they were on the verge of, of serious uh, extinction. And, and it was they that started conservation. And that was David Attenborough on BBC Radio 2 talking about hunting and conservation. Join us again in two weeks for part two. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for listening. See you in two weeks. This podcast has been brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports.